Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Over the past 30 years in the US, Canada, Mexico, and South Korea. Her poetry, fiction, and essays have been published widely in journals and anthologies such as Tricycle and Innovative Buddhist Women Swimming Against the Stream. Lushim was co editor of Making the Invisible Visible Healing Racism in Our Buddhist Communities. Her work has been featured in two documentary films Between the Lines, Asian American Women Poets and Acting on Faith, Women and the New Religious Activism in America. Misham is a core teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Brooklyn. And so, give you Misham. Thank you very much, Misham. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Um, very foggy, driving over the bridge. From <laughs> It's really beautiful, actually. So this, this talk is titled um, The Bodhisattva Vow, uh, Poking Our Heads Up from the Sea of Samsara. <laughs> Again, poke our heads up. Um, some of you may be familiar with this text. Um, as I look around the meditation hall here, I see all of the Tibetan Buddhist Tankas, so this is very fitting that this is uh, from Shanti Deva's uh, famous text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Shanti Deva was uh, active in the 8th century in what is now modern day India. Chapter 3 Full Acceptance of the Awakening Mind. I'll just read a little, little bit from it. Gladly do I rejoice in the virtue that relieves the misery of all those in unfortunate states and that gives happiness to the suffering. I rejoice in that gathering of virtue that is the cause for the Arhat's awakening. I rejoice in the definite freedom of embodied creatures from the miseries of cyclic existence. I rejoice in the awakening of the Buddhas and also in the spiritual levels of their children. And with gladness I rejoice in the ocean of virtue for developing an awakening mind that wishes all beings to be happy, as well as in the deeds that bring them benefit. With folded hands I beseech the Buddhas of all directions to shine the lamp of Dharma for all bewildered in misery's gloom. With folded hands I beseech the conquerors who wish to pass away to please remain for countless eons and not to leave the world in darkness. 
Thus, by the virtue collected through all that I have done, may the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor, the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May a rain of food and drink descend to clear away the pain of thirst and hunger, and during the eon of famine, may I myself change into food and drink. May I become an inexhaustible treasure for those who are poor and destitute. May I turn into all things they could need and be placed close beside them. Uh, that's verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3, Full Acceptance of the Awakening Mind. Translated, uh, in this case, by Stephen Batchelor. So fast-forwarding from 8th century India <laughs> to right now, uh, here's a recent quote that appeared on Facebook. Uh, uh, by George Takei from uh, an article, Being Gay, Being Buddhist, that was published in the Shambhala Sun's online site, The Lion's Roar. And he says, uh, we can all bring about change. We can bring about greater equality for all. That, I feel, is part of the mission of Buddhism. So that's George Takei. And in fact, I have a limited edition book that was put up by the Imamura family um, about the history of the Berkeley Buddhist Temple, which is a Jodo Shinshu, or Buddhist Churches of America, Pure Land uh, Temple, part of the Buddhist Churches of America network in Berkeley. Wonderful minister there now, David um, Matsumoto. And part of their history is that George Takei, when he was a young man, was a member of this temple. And he was acting even then. And there's a photograph of him on a skit night, <laughs> acting in one of their skits, looking pretty much the same. Was it the same role? <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> um, space, the final frontier. <laughs> so this is called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And I'm curious how many of you have heard of the path of the Bodhisattva and of uh, Bodhisattva vows just in general. How many of you have heard of the path of the Bodhisattva? Okay, a lot of you. Um, and how many of you have received Bodhisattva uh, vows, have taken Bodhisattva precepts? I see one hand, two hands. Anyone else? Okay, thank you very much. So for all of us, whether we've taken these vows or not, they're, as you can hear, they're very socially engaged uh, vows. Uh, they're very active vows. Um, my Buddhist name is Mushim, and I received that in 1983 in Zen Buddhist Temple, Toronto. So I uh, came from the Zen or uh, sect part of the Northern schools of Buddhism where, where the Bodhisattva ideal is, is, the, is the ideal of practice. It is it's the aim of our practice. It's the heart of our practice. And these are the same vows, Bodhisattva vows taken by uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, as well as millions and millions of other practitioners. 
so for all of us, whether we've taken these vows, which are very socially engaged vows, or whether we are simply, because we are good-hearted human beings, naturally inclined to be interested in others and to care for them, it might be helpful from time to time, and I think really even as often as possible, to reflect upon what in Buddhism is regarded as the special opportunity of being born in a human body. So of course, um, many of us, myself included, are scientific people. That's, that's part of the kind of common methodology or systems of how we are of our viewpoints in the United States and in the West today. We, we may also have um, a diversity of different spiritual frameworks, beliefs, and so forth. Uh, so I don't think we need to debate kind of what reincarnation is or whether it exists or any of that kind of stuff to, to just kind of be receptive, I hope, to the Buddhist um, uh, teachings about how being born in a human body and having what's called the precious human life is a very, very, it's considered to be a really rare opportunity. And um, which makes our very like, huge brains and clever hands uh, that can all make these really amazing things like skyscrapers and quinoa kale salad <laughs> and weapons of mass destruction and Facebook and Diet Coke and smartphones and life-changing life surgeries. So I was, I was writing this, I just kind of put down some things that are part of the bazillions of things that humans uh, can and have created. So we do have these capacities, and how did this come to be? So um, I heard this story from my original teacher, Korean monk, uh, Zen monk Samu Sinem, in the deep night in retreat in the meditation hall, probably in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or maybe up in Toronto, which was our mother temple, and it also is referred to in A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. So this is a traditional story of that explains the rarity of being born in a, in a human life and having all the potentials, the capacity, the intelligence, the creativity, the destructiveness, uh, all the stuff that we are uh, that's quite rare. And I remember... Uh, so the night that this Dharma talk was given, or maybe it was a few words spoken during retreat, that uh, that this teacher, uh, Samu Sinem, said, said, imagine that there is, that the earth was once long ago covered with a great warm ocean. There were no land masses at that time. It was all ocean, just entire globe covered with just all ocean, all sea. And in that sea, that great ocean that covers this entire planet, there is an ancient sea turtle. And the sea turtle just swims around freely um, and also it's blind. It is a blind old sea turtle. And it's just cruising around under this ocean and I guess it just opens its mouth and can get some things to eat. Um, and it's been doing that for just 
really an inconceivably long time. And on the surface of this ocean planet, there is a piece of wood that has a hole in the center of it. And you know, maybe it's about yay big, and it's got this hole in the center of it. And that hole is exactly big enough for the, that ancient sea uh, turtle's head to pop through. That's all. It's just it's not that big. And it, too, is floating around without will. It's a piece of wood. It's just floating around on the surface of this planet. The sea turtle dives deep under the ocean, and it only comes up for air every 100 years. It just comes up every 100 years, and it pokes its head up, takes some breaths, dives back deep down, deep down. So it's said that the chances that when the sea turtle pokes its head out of this ocean, that it's going to pop right up through that, that hole in the wood, that the chances of your having been born in these human bodies is even, the difficulty is even greater than the likelihood of that happening. So consider that. <laughs> consider that. Um, everyone in the room today, uh, I would say without uh, knowing all of you, but the fact that it is, this is the Gay Buddhist Fellowship, it is 2015. I would say everyone in the room today has been on the target end of systemic oppression, structural violence, and injustice. And so that would um, include myself in terms of, um, of um, race and ethnicity, as well as my sex. And that would be because of sexual orientation and or race and ethnicity and or age, physical and cognitive disability, gender identity, and many more of what we call the dimensions of diversity. And these experiences we've had of being regarded and treated as unequal or less than can, of course, be sources of very deep wounding and trauma and at the same time, these experiences, um, in my point of view as a practitioner of the Buddha Dharma, can be considered to be like deep wells that are dug into our souls, so to speak. And these wells, with the awakening and the continual cultivation of compassion, can slowly fill up as we practice and as we live in these precious human bodies uh, can slowly fill up with empathy, with understanding, and with the deep and abiding wish to help ourselves and others in healthy and appropriate ways. And that in doing this, this work of helping, this bodhisattva work, um, that we can, um, we can heal ourselves. We can lead a happier, more fulfilling, more joyful Lives. This is part of the promise of the Dharma, as you know, that, um, that simply speaking, we can grow to be more deeply happy people. So for your practice, I hope that's been true for all of you. And I can definitely say I started uh, meditating and uh, practicing in 1980, probably around 1981, 
I took the Bodhisattva vows in 1983, and uh, it just I just have to say I'm just a much happier person uh, for for all the every year that goes by, which is why I keep at it. Uh, so we might think of our practice of sitting meditation like that. We're sitting, and to the extent that we can at any given time, allowing all that we are, because we each contain many identities and uh, so much experience, including all the stories of all of our friends and families, our ancestors, our descendants, uh, all of those elements create all of whom we are. Uh, so to the extent of allowing all we are, all that we've experienced, we can allow uh, all of that to open us up, to create these deep wells or containers that then little by little and bit by bit create space for transformation and healing. So that, as Shanti Deva says in the guide <coughs> to the Bodhisattva's way of life, we can then, quote, become the source of life, unquote. We can become the source of life itself. And this, for me at least, is very much the same as a practice of deep listening to others. We open ourselves and then we empty ourselves of my, me, mine, I for just a little while. We just can put our own story down in order to fully receive another's expression, their story, whatever it is that they have to give us. Um, that practice of deep listening is one of the most healing forms of generous giving that we can give to another. Um, those of us, including myself, who have benefited by uh, very deeply compassionate uh, psychotherapists, various healers, members of our family who were able to listen to our sorrows and our joys, and we hope I've, we've been able to offer that to others, know this for sure. So I think that in sitting meditation in silence, which we've just done, we are practicing this very deep and open-ended and intimate listening that might also be called deep communication. I believe that is what Katagiri Roshi, um, a Zen master, said that uh, Zazen, or Zen sitting meditation, is. I read that a long time ago. He said it was deep communication. And when I was reading about Zen in 1980 or so, I thought, deep communication with what? <laughs> So little did I know what interesting and pleasurable communication can be achieved with a spot of sunlight on the wall or the beating of one's own heart and that inner ocean, the breath. Sitting in meditation, we become Kuan Yin. And I see, um, I think that's Kuan Yin over there in the corner, beautiful big one. Um, that's uh, Chinese. Uh, so Kanon, Kanzeon, Japanese, Kwanseon Posal, Korean, Kwanteon Botan, uh, Vietnamese, all the same Buddhist um, mythical archetypal, ar archetypal figure who is the embodiment of compassion. And who it is said in uh, her form as Avalokiteshvara hears the cries of the world. So sitting meditation 
deep listening, deep communication, the cultivation of compassion, we hear the cries of the world, and thus we become the source of life. Speaking as a mother and as uh, a source of at least one life, I know that we can ask ourselves in this very historic point in time uh, how we're connecting, since it's just a very open-ended uh, question of reflection, how each of us is connecting to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is uh, has really taken off, and particularly since this is the weekend in which we're celebrating the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who I think might be called one of our homegrown bodhisattvas, a United Statesian American bodhisattvas. Um, this is a very auspicious time, I feel, to ask this question. To ask how we're connecting to the Black Lives Matter movement and what it is, uh, that is, what it might have to do with our spiritual practice, our spiritual development, and our understanding of who we are. So obviously, that is not a question with one answer. It is a question with many answers, as many answers as there are people in this room, and many more than that, actually. And our understanding of how we are using this precious human life. The ancient sea turtle rising from the depths and poking its head above the sea of samsara, exactly through the hole in the piece of floating wood. And as you know, today, Sunday, January 18th, 2015, uh, on the weekend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s natural, national holiday, this is part of 96 hours of direct action in the Bay Area for the Black Lives Matter movement. Continuing the marches, protests, and shutdowns of freeways and federal buildings to cry out no more to the deaths of black men and women and black transgender, queer and disabled folks and young people and children due to police violence and systemic oppressions. As meditators, we sit down in deep communication, in deep listening, and we hear the cries of the world. And then the question becomes, when we get up from our seats, what is next? What do we do in response to all we've heard? So I want to be clear that this is a spiritual investigation and that both individual and collective reflection and action may be needed. Uh, how many of you are familiar with East Bay Meditation Center where I teach? Oh, wow. How many of you have been there? Thank you so much. The rest of you, come on over. Come on over the bridge. Uh, we are a, uh, we've, we're in our eighth year now. We're in downtown Oakland. So that's eastbaymeditation.org. And our first group, um, sitting group, regular weekly sitting group when we started out was a group for people of color, self-identified people of color. And our second group is the um, alphabet sangha. LGBTQIQSGM, <laughs> and uh, then um, straight white people said, what about us? So then we added our open sitting group on Friday nights, 
Uh, and after that, uh, uh, a setting group for people with disability, chronic illness, chronic pain, and um, uh, limitations of any sort who want to uh, find support and refuge in that particular sangha. We have yoga, we have, um, we've had jigang, uh, that we've had that in the past and we're going to bring it back. And we also have uh, classes and retreats and all of it is based on the understanding that we are a diverse society. Uh, Oakland is one of the most diverse uh, cities in the United States and that we would like our meditation center to reflect the diversity of Oakland for its vitality, its vibrancy, and all we can learn from one another as a multicultural society based on the premise that uh, the Dharma and social justice are very intimately entwined. Just as uh, George Takei said that the mission of Buddhism can be seen as being that which addresses justice and equality in our society. So those are part of the principles, the founding principles of East Bay Meditation Center and why I've been so happy to be a part of building that uh, center in that sangha for eight years. Um, so we sit down and then we stand up or we go about our our business. We gather for fellowship, which is wonderful to feel that spirit in this room. And then we each go forth to our daily lives, the pressures, the challenges, all of the tasks we need to do. And hopefully in our hearts, we still hear the cries of the world in with that open and compassionate space. And that's different from hearing the cries of the world in, from a place of constriction or fear or overwhelm. Uh, that happens to me every time if I open up my computer and I just look at all the headlines. I, I mean, there's very horrifying and horrible things going on in the world. And I need to remind myself as a practitioner of what Thich Nhat Hanh says, which was, he has said, and certainly uh, being um, a Vietnamese monk, and teacher with all of the history that that has involved. Um, I think he's got his credentials in order for me when he says suffering is not enough. Suffering is not enough. So when I become weighed down upon hearing the cries of the world and my heart is just deeply wounded, then I remind myself suffering is not enough and I find those sources of joy and happiness which I'm so fortunate to have. Um, I have a son whom I at least think is wonderful. Um, I once, he's, he's 26 and I, I once said to him, you're really not a normal person. Like, you know, why, why, like of most young people, myself included, you know, younger than that, I said, you know, it's kind of normal to be experimenting with alcohol and drugs and all of these things. And I said, not that I wish for that particularly as your parent, but you just like seem to not be interested. And he said, he said, that's not me. And I said, why is that? And he thought and thought it. And he said, probably the precepts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> job. Okay, and, and so so many sources of happiness and joy in my life. 
uh, and we and and we can bring those to mind uh, to keep us buoyant and uh, to keep us um, to keep us in the continual flow of the cultivation of goodness of uh, the bodhisattva qualities, if we wish to look at it that way, and of considering how it is that we're connected to this very vital movement that is going on actually worldwide right now under uh, the hashtag, hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, title and being going out on the social media and throughout the world via the uh, worldwide net. So from Ferguson to Staten Island to France and Nigeria to every part of the world that is calling out to us. And to Dr. King, born on January 15th in 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia, and assassinated on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. We hear the many voices. We reflect on the opportunity of being born in a human body, and each in our own way, through our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, we can answer. Let us recommit today, if we wish to do so, to the awakening that the Buddha Shakyamuni taught us is possible, and recommit to profound freedom and joyful liberation. So I thank you very much for your kind attention. And I think we probably have about 10 or 15 minutes for any insights or questions that you may have. And I'm particularly interested in, in your insights, how, uh, whether what I've said connects to you in any way, and if so, how it connects to your, your, um, your spiritual life. Thank you very much for a lovely talk. Um, I was surprised and one was your emphasis on practicing compassion as a, as a route to um, being happier mm -hmm. uh, in your life. And um, I and I think a lot of us help speak for myself and wondering, you know, since suffering is not enough, what if where is happiness happening? I uh, used to confuse it with pleasure, um, and that got me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll just actually say one time, happiness is a byproduct of other things that we do. And uh, I found that's, that's really been my experience. And uh, this morning in particular, someone sent me a link to a video on Huffington Post, of all places, uh, was on generating happiness, and it was, the point of it was that by practicing uh, appreciation and compassion is how we become happy. Practicing appreciation yes. and compassion yes. is how yeah. we become happy. Yeah. Thank you, wonderful. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. And oh, I, I thought you were going to point this one. Oh, no, no, you. Point to me. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's kind of spiritual spooky. I had to look at Roy and uh, Wink because before the break we were talking, I mean, before we started, we were talking 
this week, I'm a teacher, and my volunteer quit. And she said the reason she quit was that at our school, she doesn't, she no longer looks forward to coming to our school. The teachers don't feel, don't seem to have any joy. That they seem stressed out and um, distracted, and uh, you know, we had this long conversation about other schools and leadership and all those things, and. And she asked me on the spot, like, do you find joy? How do you find joy in your job? Or do you find joy anymore? And I was talking to Roy about, like, just the idea of where do you find joy? What is joy? Um, you know, I, I can have this sort of retrospective joy that I'm helping these kids because it's a really uh, low, uh, impoverished population, really intense uh, family lives, PTSD, and struggling children and families. So, but on a daily basis, you know, how do I remind myself to come back to that joy? So I just, I love the question. It was weirdly, <laughs> in, you know, right on time for me. And uh, you know, like what you just said, I wrote it down about practicing appreciation and compassion. Thank you so much. And thank you for being a teacher. How old are the kids? Kindergarten. Oh, kindergarten. Yeah. And Lively. a lot of systemic oppression. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, my kid went through um, the Oakland Public Schools K through 12, and I volunteered as a parent every year in those classrooms um, as a teacher's assistant. And then in high school, I actually taught literature for four years for free. Uh, and the only two years I wasn't in those schools was in middle school when it was on lockdown. <laughs> Parents couldn't get in. Yeah, so thank you for your work. So important. And I hope you find ways to, to find joy. Yeah. Even if it's just watching cat videos on your phone. <laughs> 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 I've heard that analogy or metaphor we're going to talk before about the turtle coming up every 100 years. Yeah, yeah. And that leads me to think, okay, so so that suggests that the technology that's given us this very rare opportunity to have a human life. Um, so, okay, fine. So, so I have a human, a person has a human life. Let's say he took, there's a virtuous life and, he, and, he's, and he's sympathetic and compassionate and so on. And, and then he dies. Um, well, what was is, is, is that the best we can do for this per his analogy, this incredibly rare opportunity to have a life? Or what do you do with the lessons we get if, if, if we actually do lead a virtuous life? Is, is this like some kind of like next step after that? Uh, are we bringing in the, the question of karma and, and, and you know, that's, you know uh, other lives and that kind of thing? I, I'm just curious to know, this is probably no, it's a very good question. Very good. Yeah, it is. It's a good question. It's a stupid question. But, but it's, it's just, those can be the same. Those are good questions only stupid people will ask. So you're asking, is, is that kind of it? Well, well, well I'm just trying to say, if, if you present this cosmology of this very extremely rare opportunity, very rare, then, then um, it seems like. There must be, what, what do you do with that 80 years or so? I mean, even to live it as, as virtuous as you can, then, then what, what's, what's the result of that? Or, or what comes after that? Or, or why, 
uh, why would we give this opportunity for, for what a greater purpose? I don't know whether that's... It's a very good question. You don't have to backpedal at all. What's your name? Clint. Clint. So this would be my answer. There may be many, many answers. Uh, have you studied um, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path? Yes, I have. Okay, so uh, uh, as you know, the Eightfold Noble Path is usually divided into that that those eight aspects, those eight spokes of the Dharma Chakra or Dharma Wheel, are usually divided into three categories. And um, there's a category of, um, sometimes it's called mental development. So there we have concentration and, and mindfulness. There's the, uh, there's a development of virtue, which we might also call uh, shila or ethical conduct. And then, very importantly, there's a category which is the development of panya, prajna, or wisdom. And that has our uh, right view or wise view and understanding in it. And so it would be considered that, that that's why it's not like a path where you're just do, going in a linear way so much as it's conceptualized as a wheel with that because everything's connected to everything else and uh, we're always cultivating things simultaneously. Uh, so, yes, we live a virtuous life and we escort elderly people across the street and hope when we become elderly, someone escorts us. Uh, and, you know, we're good people and we um, separate the compost from the recycling, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and... In, in that system of what the Buddha taught, as I understand it, that's all good stuff, and it just isn't enough. It is not enough uh, for spiritual awakening because we also need uh, the mental, uh, we need a shila, samadhi, and, and prajna. We need to have mental development or, and that kind of cultivation, meditation and so forth. We need wisdom and what cultivates wisdom and insight into the nature of how things are. And we also need those virtuous actions. So, so we're, it's, it's a kind of a package deal. Yeah. Does that make sense? Not, so not enough. Not we'll enough. Up, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good start. Maybe you and I can have a beer somewhere in a bar. And <laughs> 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 we really talk have a few hours of discussion. Big question for me. I know it can't be answered in like a, a, a two-minute response. Well, you can, uh, you can contact me through the Contact Us feature um, of uh, our website, eastbaymeditation.org. I'm the person who processes the web mail. And remind me of who you are, and I'll be very happy to uh, dialogue with you. Because it's a, it's a wonderful question. Thank you. Yeah. But you have to remember that suffering is not enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to address what you were saying, too, about uh, I'm not, not much of a fan of reincarnation or past lives <coughs> or future lives, particularly. Although, given the chance, I want to come back as a dairy cow up in Marin. That much is full morning and night. But I think our, maybe the point of being here is that you add to the collective consciousness your contribution, and then you go away. You did. But what part of the consciousness is that right off the body? You know, I mean, but, okay. Well, actually, your good deeds. 
through your life would add to the global consciousness. So that maybe is the point to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, cow of the future. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my original teacher, who was Korean and was fluent in English, said he did not like the word reincarnation at all because it indicates that there is like something to reincarnate. Mm. And uh, he said he vastly preferred the word in English, rebirth. And so uh, rebirth, not, not reincarnation. And that would be my view as well. Um, I have a friend who said that her, her uh, I guess it was her mother, who was a first-generation immigrant from a country in Asia, Buddhist country in Asia, Asia, had a had an uncle. So it was her great uncle who had very long ears and a very sad face, and he died. And then about a month afterwards, they got this basset hound, <laughs> and she would sometimes find her find her mother in the kitchen looking at this dog and saying. Uncle? <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> so, I mean, there, there can be stories like that and people like, Is that you? What is that? Uh, and in, in kind of the broader uh, scope of things, when we look at the idea, not of reincarnation in that sense, but of, of rebirth, um, we can see that uh, indeed uh, life and death are part of cycles that are that are uh, always on, ongoing, that are always ongoing. And part of the Bodhisattva vow, as I understand it, is to just kind of throw ourselves into it and, and feel that um, we are part of this, um, uh, this great movement, actually. Yeah. Um. Oh, let's do that quick. Pema Shudran talks about the difference between absolute bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. And I'm very interested in that. Um, and, and I'm also very interested in the bodhisattva vow, which I've taken informally. Um, and uh, I believe Pema says that uh, we are mostly engaging in relative bodhicitta, which is to increase uh, the compassion and, and, and wisdom. But from time to time, she mentions absolute <coughs> bodhicitta. And when she does, um, I, my heart warms. And uh, I have some sense that... that uh, I agree with her, even though I don't know exactly what she means. It sounds almost transcendental, um, and I know that uh, Buddhism is uh, not theistic, but it's not adverse to theism either. Um, so, what what is your opinion about absolute bodhicitta? Is, is Very that... hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you may laugh. But very hardcore. Very hardcore. What, when you say hardcore, you don't mean the opposite of lighthearted, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> it can be done lighthearted. Insofar as I understand what you're talking about, 
um, I actually chose not to read some of the passages from the famous Shantideva text because they're too freaking hardcore for most of us. Mm. And they're easily misinterpreted to just sound insane or, you know, it's, um, most modern Americans are just not going to go for this stuff. However, it is in the tradition and it is the way I myself was trained. So, um, here we go. Actually, right after, I ended with reading verse 10 in chapter 3, right away. I cut it off. I thought, no, no, too hardcore. Verse 11, absolute bodhicitta. Without any sense of loss, I shall give up my body and enjoyments, as well as all my virtues of the three times, for the sake of benefiting all. By giving up all, sorrow is transcended, and my mind will realize the sorrowless state. It is best that I now give everything to all beings in the same way as I shall at death. Having given this body up for the pleasure of all living beings, by killing, abusing, and beating it, may they always do as they please. Um, so that uh, would refer to uh, the many, many traditional stories of the evolution of the Bodhisattva, for instance, uh, the um, Jataka tales, the previous lives of the Buddha, there, I think there are many in which the Buddha was, say, uh, an animal who may be a mother who allowed herself to be killed and eaten for her, her cubs, to, uh, for their lives to be saved, um, and just many drastic, violent, weird stories uh, from our point of view of uh, incredible sacrifice to benefit others. And that's very much a part of the tradition to set that absolute standard that bodhicitta in that sense means we withhold nothing. We withhold nothing. It's a radical, um, it's a totally radical act of, um, of exchanging self for other is, is another way that the Tibetan Buddhists talk about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so, uh, announcements. Um, we have, um, well, I should read. Well, first of all, I'll say that Mushin, thank you very much. And she let us know that she has to leave right at, right at the bell at noon. Um, but as you mentioned, if you want to contact her through eastbaymeditation.org, mm -hmm. you may. And also, I'll have flyers out front for some more classes um, where you can spend more time with her. Meditation and social justice, contemplative practices from four faith traditions, Buddhist four big truths, liberation and suffering, and going deeper in the Dharma, a group of committed practitioners. So these will be on the front desk by the Dhammable. And speaking of Donna, Donna is uh, our word for tradition. I mean, for generosity, and um, so uh, our host, Philip, will be will have the Donna Bowl out front, and please um, help us with expenses like the rent, newsletters, speakers, honorarium, um, Larkin Street dinners, our mailbox and website. There's a, a card out front that shows you what our monthly expenses are. Our suggested donation is $10. And um, next week's speaker... <coughs> will be Wade Meyer. He, he's the director of programs at the Rainbow Community Center, which serves the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community of Contra Costa County. 
With a background in women's studies and international studies, he obtained his Master of Divinity and Certificate in Sexuality and Religion in 2009 from Pacific School of Religion. His partner, Corey Nayamura, is the director of Endurance, of Endurance, a sports and psychology center. He is a psychologist and endurance sports coach who uses mindfulness practice in his work with clients, runners, triathletes, and families. That's for next week. Are there any other announcements? Our host? Oh, I'm your host, Philip. Yeah. Um, most of you know I'll be passing around the bowl, and uh, there's hot water for tea, so please clean your cup afterward, and there are some snacks out there. Hopefully lots of dairy. A frequent speaker here at the Sangha is a gentleman by the name of Dale Borglum. He is he's, he heads the Living Dying Project, and he's been part of the conscious dying movement in this country for the past almost 40 years. He, Ram Dass, and Stephen Levine began this movement um, many years ago. And he's a great speaker, very compelling. He, he'll be coming here, I believe, this spring. And uh, he's giving a free talk this coming Friday at the Women's Building on 18th Street uh, from 7 o'clock to 9 p.m. And so those of you who have perhaps heard him speak before might want to come you know, and see him there. And those who haven't, um, it's, it's very satisfying. It's a, usually a very enriching talk that he does. What's so, up with you then? Um, the talk is called Conscious Living, Conscious Dying. And uh, he just had two others. Uh, he speaks all over the Bay Area. So if you'd like to check them out, that's this coming Friday from 7 to 9, the Women's Building. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.